the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Mujan Asgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Adriana Simona Mihaita is a senior lecturer at the University of Technology in Sydney, where she leads the Future Mobility Lab. She's an industry-focused academic aiming to improve people's movement via artificial intelligence in a smart city context. She's an award-winning scientist, including winner of the 2022 Women in AI Infrastructure Award in Australia and New Zealand, a triple finalist in the 2022 Women in AI Awards. She received her PhD from the Institut National Polytechnique de Grenoble in France in 2012 after being awarded an Allocation de Recherche by the French government and an international Erasmus scholarship. She worked as assistant professor in computer science at University of Lumière Lyon II and as a research scientist and assistant professor at the University of Lorraine in France. She moved to Australia in 2015 and joined Data61 as senior researcher and team leader of the Intelligent Mobility Group. She joined later in 2019 UTS. She holds several leadership roles, securing funding over $5 million in initiatives such as the Australian-Singapore Strategic Collaboration. Welcome, Simona. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on our show. Thank you for having me and uh, for taking the time to know about me. <laughs> of course. Well, uh, I was very amazed by um, your background and when you were basically the winner of the AI for infrastructure. So, Tell me a little bit about your work on uh, AI applied to solve different infrastructure and smart city problems. Describe some maybe examples of the projects you've been involved in. Yes, absolutely. Artificial intelligence can be applied to solve any problems that we are facing on a daily basis in our cities, from the way we travel, from the air quality that we're breathing, from the choices that we're making between different transport modes, even from the buildings that we're living all our environment is currently generating a lot of information, a lot of data. 
So making sense of that data in order to improve and make decisions is actually extremely beneficial, uh, not to the transport planners, but also to us as citizens, right? So a few examples on how we have applied artificial intelligence so far um, are mainly related, for example, to predict, let's say, traffic flow or traffic speed around the city we live in, around specific uh, roads, around uh, highways, or even around local neighborhoods. Um, uh, traffic flow, for example, is recorded by um, loop counters, and that actually measure how many cars are passing by, um, usually with a high frequency. We're talking about five minutes um, uh, time intervals, um, and basically can be transmitted to us, and we are consuming this type of streams in order to train several machine learning models uh, or deep learning models uh, based on how much information, historical information we have. And of course, then predict the traffic flow or the traffic speed, let's say in the next uh, five minutes or in the next uh, 15, 30 minutes ahead of time and so on. So this is an example where um, we have launched this type of AI models for DM7 in Sydney. Other examples is to really use AI to predict how long accidents will last. So solving accidents in, in our city is really a hard job uh, and the traffic management centers are on a lot of pressure because they need to make decisions fast and most of the times they have very limited information from the field, from what is happening in reality. Uh, so uh, what is happening is that they need to send personnel on the road, they need to uh, get there in time and they need to clear off the accident area as soon as possible. So a lot of times um, being able to predict in advance how severe that accident is or how long uh, we are estimating that is going to last, is, it, is, it will help them a lot. So uh, this application looked at really training um, all sorts of deep learning models in order to predict two things, the likelihood of incident crashes happening in uh, a specific area or simply predicting uh, how long incidents will last, uh, how many minutes, for example. So this is another example. Then the third example, and probably I'll stop there because there are so many to talk about, is really a combination between the AI um, algorithms that we are training uh, with other modeling techniques um, like simulation modeling and more recently with digital twin modeling. So digital twin is really a hot concept out there, but in reality, the, the steps and the modeling techniques are there for quite quite a long time. Is What does it mean, a digital twin, yeah. <laughs> for a layperson like me? <laughs> um, digital <laughs> twin is really a, a digital replica of a, a real system with the finest granular details. So uh, let's take a simple example of a car. Uh, car manufacturers usually have the digital replica of the models that they're producing in the highest details, like, you know, what components, what parts they're using, what IDs, what is the performance of that car tested out, uh, what fuel consumption and so on. All these digital elements, when you're putting them together in a 3D environment with IDs behind it, with data uh, transmitted from each component, say data around uh, the speed of that vehicle circulating on our roads or uh, data around the acceleration or the deceleration of that specific car, all this represents that entity, that 
that digital car plus the data around it. So we're talking about uh, some sort of a data-driven digital twin of a, of a car. So, but digital twins can be really, uh, how should I say, applied to any type of real life system. Either we're talking about an entire train network, a bus network. Um, we're talking about buildings. We're talking about production plans. We're talking about warehouses. We're talking about even medical digital twins uh, lately uh, have, have really exploded, which can help uh, practitioners learn the specificity of that system and then perform training, all sorts of training techniques, learn how to intervene and so on. Mm. So, so basically, if I inter- understood well, it's, it's sort of a simulation of the system that we have outside in digitally, like physically, uh, but in digital, right? Exactly. It's a simulation which is powered by real data. And uh, one of the great things that you can do with that data is that you can link furthermore all sorts of prediction algorithms that consumes that data and then basically predicts how that system is going to react in the next uh, half an hour or one hour under specific constraints or under specific uh, functioning uh, circumstances. So it's really... This is where the part where AI becomes complementary to the whole modeling, the digital team modeling, and becomes part of that scenario kind of modeling where we're using a combination of tools to really launch a lot of uh, what-if hypothesis, which eventually leads us to a comparison of various uh, mm-hmm. solutions, various scenarios, and, and then pick the best scenario that could actually solve uh, the initial problem. So it's really, we're getting in an era where technologies start to complement each other. And I would give another example of the combination, not only between digital twin and AI, I would give a combination between the linking between digital twins and virtual reality or augmented reality, where people can actually find themselves immersed in that 3D model and they can actually make all sorts of scenarios and a test a hypothesis inside while being inside the production plan, let's say, or inside the warehouse or inside a specific building and so on. So we are getting into uh, an era where technology starts to become interconnected with each other and they are driven by the user, which is mainly us humans. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so fascinating. <laughs> so you talked a lot about actually transportation, traffic. So so my question is that w- what is interesting and exceptional about transportation for you? W- why you've been, you know, working on that and what do you think is exciting about it? That's a great question. Interestingly enough, uh, my PhD thesis was in automatic control. So I'm basically trained as an automatic control engineer, which is fascinated about uh, how can we automate large production plants and basically any type of production system. And then what I realized is that I'm I'm actually more interested in research and scientific science work that, um, how should I say, impacts directly our everyday life. And I actually uh, made a link between the um, automatic control control and intersection control. That's how I actually started. And that's how I transitioned because I realized that the the beauty of engineering is that it can translate from one discipline to another. And then once I, I realized that 
wow, you can do so many things to control the, the way people move or to influence, right, um, how long they're waiting at their traffic light stops. And then I just became fascinated by the entire domain, not only intersection control, but like uh, long distance movement, interaction between people movement and our environment. And then uh, integrating that via 3D modeling and simulation. And it's just opened up the, the entire universe of, of modeling. And that's how actually I fell in love with transport and mobility. And ever since, I just love it. Um, I think it's a domain that impacts our lives um, every day. And that um, if we can make as academics or scientific uh, people, if we can make the tiniest improvement, you know, that can help us not to be stuck in traffic for hours, <laughs> I, I think that's already a huge achievement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that makes total sense. Yeah, nobody loves to get stuck no. in traffic jam. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for like helping us to <laughs> to to save our time. So actually, it just leads to my next question: that transportation historically has been one of the most polluting industries in in the world. Talking about shipping and you know the oil and gas industry that creates you know the fuel for our transportation. Um, like, you know, excess of cars and everything and, and like building the highways to basically cut the trees and everything. So what is your vision and point of view on this industry? And how do you think basically it could become more sustainable or how can AI also can help in achieving that goal? The transportation system needs to really move on into the long-term sustainability phase. And uh, this is due to all the issues that you have just mentioned, right? Uh, either we're talking massive production or significant CO2 emissions or just taking up a lot of space um, from our environment. We really need an urgent shift towards sustainable and eco-friendly transit solutions. And I actually think that um, before the pandemic, um, there was a huge effort in this space and it's actually still, um, how should I say, ongoing and it will continue progressing. I'm mainly referring to the transitioning towards electric and autonomous vehicles. And this is a trend that a lot of countries at the moment are embracing, especially the transitioning towards electric vehicles. This is this is really um how should I say, a pledge that a lot of countries around the world have made a commitment to and they are delivering towards this goal. Of course, it comes with these challenges and infrastructure um, uh, reshaping and rethinking and the whole transport plus energy grid uh, interdependency that needs to be modeled together in order to really make place for such a large-scale EV adoption. But I actually think we're moving in the right space. Uh, Australia is also making moves in this space, a little bit much slower, it's true, than other countries um, from Europe, but we are heading towards the, the right direction. When it comes to, um, how should I say, more uh, reducing the carbon footprint, but it, it's also, there is significant 
work in the space of shared um, shared uh, journey planning, on-demand mobility. In France, uh, there was a covoiturage even before Uber appeared. It was very popular to basically share a trip with other people. Yeah, and blah, blah, car. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, blah, blah, car, right? It's still ongoing, is it, in France? Yeah, yeah, it is. Exactly. So this this concept appeared even before the Uber came to the market. So there is definitely a need that people have expressed to really, how should I say, reduce uh, the cost, reduce the impact uh, of their journey. Now, the pandemic, of course, put a significant break uh, in terms of proximity, in terms of this whole protocol for respecting the social distances, which made things a little bit harder. However, I'm actually confident that this will will actually start progressing even more in the future. So I'm actually expecting that sharing a trip with other people, just like we're sharing public transport uh, for our own personal interest, could be much more easily done in the next um, five years than we're doing it now, I think. Mm-hmm. And talking about AI, specifically about the transportation industry, what have you witnessed over the past years that you can see basically the advancement of AI in this industry, how, how AI has helped or transformed this industry? One quick example that comes to my mind is really collision avoidance and basically how real-time object detection from camera feeds has helped to, how should I say, uh, to, to, to really put a brake on a vehicle's movement, especially on autonomous um, vehicles. So the computer vision field has uh, known a significant increase. So real-time object detection, real-time anomaly detection has progressed massively. So we are now capable of detecting very fast problems from our environment, uh, problems with our transport systems, either buses are late or something is happening on a specific train line or there are some obstacles and so on. So these are just a few examples that have helped the transportation industry in the last years and they're making a significant difference out there. Mm-hmm. Do you see them like scaled in a to a degree that we can actually see that impact in our cities? Or because some of the the projects it can be just in a lab or local. Honestly, I don't know. In France, we have that implemented in a wide range, so that can impact it. How is it in Australia? Like, does for example, all buses have this sensor and the system connected, so you can track them every second? Um. So, for example, uh, a very quick example that comes to my mind is the real-time tracking of bus and train movements uh, that is currently in place in Sydney. Um, So, the buses are equipped with the GTFS devices, global transit feed systems, uh, which basically transmits very fast, um, I think every second, uh, their positioning. So, we know exactly where they are in the city. We know exactly how long they're going to be late until they will reach the next stop. We currently have already a part of that technology that is currently shaping our cities. So this is actually a huge benefit. 
in the back mm-hmm. scenes, mm-hmm. there are quite a few that. companies and that are so trying to level up their AI capabilities. The future, um, and for example, recently, Transpunisa was just um, ten years as innovations uh, finished a um, project with the help of AI in the field of transportation. Um, congestion management platform, which uses basically a combination of data streams to predict the traffic um, the traffic uh, congestion uh, in the next um, hour ahead. So the AI embedding has started already and um, it starts to make a difference uh, in the way we move uh, at the moment in Australia. There are even, um, I think there are trials at the moment, even in Melbourne for um, a more intelligent um, traffic control system, which takes into consideration pedestrians. So they're using a combination of traffic control devices, camera feeds, plus pedestrian detection, I think. and all of that streams are really um, uh, influencing, for example, the optimizations between um, red, yellow, green um, phases um, that 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 are currently embedded in the in specific uh, intersections. So yes, this technology is is really implemented, experimented. Um, so I'm I'm actually expecting that is going to progress even more from here onwards. Mm-hmm. And how, how how widespread do you think will be the use of self-driving cars? I think pretty widespread. I think a lot of countries are motivated to adopt connected and autonomous vehicles. One of the big breaks on this large-scale adoption um, is actually related to the standardization and regulation of such vehicles on our roads. Uh, So there are many issues when it comes to um, really insurance and mitigation of conflicts in terms of accidents. Um, what is happening at the moment is that the technology is out there. It's It's been trial. There have been quite a lot of trials in Australia as well of autonomous shuttles that have been used, for example, to for um, tourist attractions, just moving around the beach from point A to point B or just carrying uh, elders in these uh, retirement villages. So this technology has already been used. And it's really, how should I say, it has a good progress, right? Now, But when we need to move from this small-scale testing site to a large-scale adoption, that's when the things get complicated. Because autonomous vehicles at the moment, they are equipped with a lot of sensors, but eventually they also rely a lot on the infrastructure in which they're moving, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about, for example, 5G? The 5G, and they also need to have the possibility to communicate, for example, with the infrastructure and with other vehicles. So we're talking about V2V, vehicle-to-vehicle communication, and V2X, vehicle-to-infrastructure communication. So this requires dedicated short-range communication systems that need to be installed both in the vehicle, but also, for example, in our road infrastructure. Uh, So we need, for example devices that are being installed inside the vehicles that transmit the geolocation of that vehicle very fast. Uh, DSRC sends it 10 times per second, so super fast, so that other vehicles in its surrounding uh, areas can receive and stop whether they're very close uh, by 
and basically uh, just uh, push the brake, but also a communication between each vehicle and the, um, let's say, the traffic control system. If there is a red light, the autonomous vehicles need to stop. But in order for them to stop, they need to receive a message from the intersection control to them, which says, this is a red light, please stop. <laughs> so it's really about equipping not only the next generation of cars with the correct devices, but equipping as well the road infrastructure. And that requires a lot, <laughs> a lot of investment and a lot of changes, right? So that's why it's so slow. So there will be a lot of progress made, but I think we have a few steps to solve before we actually can release them for a large-scale utilization. Mm -hmm. Do you know any city or any, um, even like a part of a city today, anywhere in the world that are running this um, like self-driving cars very, very heavily? There were, um, as I said, lots of trials. Lots of trials around the world. Um, US is a big leader in this space. They've they've tested um, autonomous driving vehicles in multiple locations. But once again, we are talking again about small scale testing. There is not a large scale adoption, as I would say. By the way, when I'm referring to autonomous vehicles, I'm referring to really level five of autonomy, like no driver, no uh, no wheel, no pedals, no nothing, right? So talking about full autonomy control, because currently there are a lot of vehicles on the market which can be put into autonomous driving mode. So basically it's hands off the wheel. And this has been trialed in many cities around the world. It's, this is extensively trialed, even in Australia. Uh, I know Transurban did a lot of tests with them. But once again, we're talking about testing where the driver needs to stay behind the wheel. So in case something happens, they take over the control of the car. So this, uh, absolutely, this has happened around the world. But the last level of autonomy, really with no human intervention, like nothing, like n no pedals, no wheels, that's at this stage uh, uh, not in large uh, testing uh, from what I know at the moment. I actually heard about it in Thailand that they have very like active participation in implementing self-driving buses and minibuses. Uh, but again, like Tallinn is a very, very small <laughs> place and that's very easy to do that for them, um, especially with their <laughs> e-government initiatives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Of course, everything everything is much simpler when when you have a smaller city, uh, when you have a smaller population. But um, if we're looking at cities like Paris or Mexico City or <laughs> New York, I mean, um, it's gonna be difficult. <laughs> it takes a couple of years. <laughs> um, more than that, I think. M more than a couple of years, but of course. How much uh, do you think? I would estimate around ten. 10 years from now on. Mm. But it's the, yeah, the technology is <laughs> definitely there. We have everything we need, but it, it it's a journey to get all the steps and approvals and insurance mm -hmm. companies and everything right without having human fatalities. And I think this is the criteria number one, zero fatalities, because that's the promise, right, of autonomous and connected vehicles. People will adopt them if there is the promise that 
we will transition towards zero crashes, right? So <laughs> if, if they fail to meet that promise, then there's going to be a huge backlash as it was a few years back. Mm -hmm. That's interesting what you say, because for me, and I've been reading a little bit about it, of course, I'm not as knowledgeable as you in the domain, but I know that they are much more safer than us being the driver, especially when many of us, we drive while being drunk, while, you know, being uh, distracted and so on. So, or tired. Yeah, yeah, or tired. So the number of the fatalities that uh, statistically that we can have uh, with human drivers is much higher than, than the machine. But this fear of using the machine because we're going to not be under control, that is actually what probably is <laughs> the problem Most today. likely. Not being in control of a vehicle is something that, it, it, yeah, it's, it's quite a challenge, I think. I agree with you. So talking about actually a lot about AI and data, you said somewhere that one of the hurdles that you had was that AI models are data hungry. <laughs> I really like that. Uh, can you tell tell me a little bit what did you mean from that? Yes. In general, whenever we're trying to obtain an accurate prediction, we need to have sufficient information that allows us to learn from past historical trends with regards to how that system has performed or what, uh, what anomalies have happened. So this usually comes with several streams of historical data sets that needs to be available for the model training. Now, one of the main challenges is that if there is not enough data or the time period is very short, say you have just a couple of months or you have maybe a couple of months in winter, but you actually need to run your prediction model in summer. Well, the, the, there is a completely different behavior, right, that can be affected by the seasonality. And for example, if you're training your model using data generated in the winter season and you are trying to predict for summer, it will not be accurate. So in order to really train the models in the best accurate way, you need data from all the seasons and you need data from multiple years to be able to also include those patterns and variations uh, across the years. And this usually uh, means translates into a, a lot of data points that and uh, several features that you need to be able to collect, clean, aggregate, uh, sometime even um, normalize, because, for example, they might have different uh, units of measure. And, and not only, uh, what we've noticed in the past is that outliers and anomalies can also affect the accuracy of your model. So if you have a time period where, let's say, you're trying to predict the traffic uh, speed on a highway, but you're using data from a period of time where the sensors on that highway were down or whatever happened and they were not transmitting accurately, you have like interrupted streams of data that is coming to you or you have even missing periods. You have, maybe you don't have data from uh, 8 a.m. in the morning and so on. So when that happens is that, of course, the accuracy of your model is going to be much lower. Uh, so that's why, yes, if you want to achieve a great prediction uh, result, you need to be able to have quite an extensive uh, data set that needs to be uh, ready for 
Mm-hmm. I see that. So I want to a little bit talk about your personal achievements now. Uh, you're an award-winning scientist, industry academic. I was just reading the full list of the awards you've received. <laughs> too much, <laughs> like too much. 2021 <laughs> IoT Awards, Mercedes. <laughs> ITS Australia for Transport Data and R&D Excellence, winner of the 2018 ITS Australia National Awards and, and so on. So, so many awards. <laughs> You've been interviewed by Channel 7 News, The Guardian. So obviously it shows a lot of success and achievements. And these, these awards just are the little tiny bits of, you know, basically celebrating all the work that you've done before ahead until you get on, you know, on the stage and receiving these awards. So my question is that what has led you to have all this success? What were the main factors that led you to achieve this? Can you share it with us? Yes, of course. I think the most important uh, factor is really the people that you surround yourself with, especially the team that works with you. So this awards, you know, some of them might be individual awards, but the majority of them are actually a reflection of a team effort. So really, when you're working in a team with passionate people that work hard and that you meet every day and that you put shoulder to shoulder to solve problems, that's when you start to achieve great things. And when you get recognition for those great things, it's actually a fantastic and overwhelming feeling that you're working with the right people. I mean, for me, I think that it's very hard to achieve great results when you are working alone. You can do that, but you will always be bounded by only your point of view. However, when you work in a team, when you brainstorm all the time, when you search for solutions and some of them fail and you need to go back 2.0 and then you need to rethink everything again, that's when multiple minds working together achieve great things. So I would say that being surrounded by people which are passionate about the same problems, which are hardworking, who are hardworking. Th- this for me is really the kind of like the most important factors that, that can lead you to have recognition for what you're doing. Um, people that, and also the second thing is uh, the same, people that believe in you. So the academic career, and especially when you're trying to, to, to solve uh, real world problems with a real industry um, engagement, you, you, you basically need to um, have a balance between the theoretical part and the applied part. So having that balance often requires a juggle between uh, working on items that r- the, the industry cares about right? And they will use those items versus working on more theoretical aspects and problems that we, for example, uh, as academics care more about. So it's really about balancing always these two kind of like aspects. And it's not easy all the time. (laughs) So it's not easy. And there are many challenging moments. So I say the second most important factor, of course, is hard work to balance these two aspects in, in the work that you're doing to really have a social impact, a social good, so that you can you can really solve a real problem. I think that's extremely important. Maybe the last one is really people that believe in you no matter what. So even when you're at your lowest and you really are underperforming or maybe you are not 
seeing the best solutions to solve a problem or maybe you are stuck with some sort of a wrong decisions. Uh, having people that believe in you and that will always encourage you to keep going even in those hard moments, it's extremely crucial to never give up and like always, always keep working. So yeah, if I if I really have to draw the line, it's really about the people that you surround yourself with. So I'm I'm extremely grateful for the people that I have at work and in my life that believe in me and they give me a lot of power to move on every day. I love that. <laughs> so you mentioned a lot um surrounding yourself with people that believe in you. How do you make people to believe in you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a hard thing too. <laughs> That's a very tricky question. How do you make people to believe in you? Um, By always showing up, you know, always show up. Like don't let people down. Um, Just uh, whenever you're needed, show up. Be a team player. If you show up on and on and on and on, people, and of course, results will start to come up, then people will have confidence in you. You know, they will trust you. And when they build that trust, they will be by your side. But I think the most important is really show up all the time near the people that you like working with and near the people you love. Always be there. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I, I love that. Thank you. Maybe another question is, what decisions that you made were primordial to your current state um, and where you are today? Maybe some very critical decisions you made have said, okay, that was the right decision. Or maybe like there was something you made, oh, maybe that's a big lesson. <laughs> wow. Uh, yes, you're right. Some decisions can change our life forever. I think <laughs> for me, the critical decision <laughs> that completely changed my life was to move to Australia. I, I'm very honest about it. And I think that my life has completely changed since moving to Australia in the good. And I was exposed to a lot of challenges, of course, and uh, but also to a lot of good people and uh, people that had a very good vision and a very clear understanding of what is needed at the moment in the market internationally and locally. So I have to admit that Australia is very dynamic from an academic point of view, it's also very dynamic from an industry engagement point of view. So I really like that. Um, the European system, I find it, for example, in I'm mainly referring to the academic system at the moment because that's my the path that I've mainly been into. I found it uh, to be um, very difficult and with a lot of blockages, especially in the engagement and understanding between academia and industry. So that this was always this clear separation and kind of like that image that the industry has in the sense that oh academia is only for academics like oh mm-hmm. yeah like create like really this like obvious separation that people don't talk academia and industry together exactly like there's such a huge gap between academia and industry in Europe that personally you know I I was really amazed by uh, but actually Australia is different. So I've seen a lot of industry companies in Australia that listen to academics, listen to their ideas, and they are eager, hungry for innovation. They are hungry to get new ideas that they have not thought about before and implement that. So 
for me that I think that that was really fantastic and I'm I'm seeing this even now and I'm, I'm even more and I'm I'm actually uh, I have to be honest about it that yes moving to Australia was critical in my journey it actually allowed me to grow professionally to understand better the industrial problems and to align my research with the industrial problems. And one of the replies that I recently had from an industry partner was like, oh, Simone, I love that your work is so applied. And then I really like that because it shows that I'm really trying to solve a real need, right? But they listen to us. They listen to our academic ideas. Um, I think this is really part of the Australian ecosystem uh, that allowed me to grow into the science person that I am today. Um, So yes, that, that was a critical decision in my life. Wow, yeah, <laughs> I, I can definitely see that. I, I'm even imagining maybe you simulated your other lives. <laughs> yes. What would happen if I would stay in France? Or <laughs> I would have, I would be in Paris for sure. <laughs> if I, <laughs> if I, you wouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, if I was not in Australia, I would definitely be in Paris, I think, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think the idea of Paris is exciting and attractive, but when you leave there, <laughs> after a while, it's, it can be very challenging um, yeah I mean challenging I'm yeah. myself like I've been in France for the past 10 years but I decided to leave Paris last year especially during pandemic I was it was very difficult <laughs> but yeah it's always good to go back I always love to go to my like old cafe oh I got a croissant there I love the pancakes <laughs> there like crepes there but yeah <laughs> exactly exactly I love it. Uh, it, it, it yes it just like just like you I, I also have them this uh, souvenirs that I I remember with a lot of pleasure <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still working I'm still working actually with my um, ex-colleagues from University of Lorraine I'm still working with them oh, wow. and I just rec- I just recently returned from a conference in France um, it was it was in Nancy so it was a pleasure to meet my old colleagues and to really talk to industrial French companies. So I really liked it. So I'm, I'm still in connection with uh, my old colleagues. I'm still working together with them. And uh, it, it's really nice to, to maintain this international kind of like collaboration, even if we're on two separate continents. It's yeah, like we can get inspired, uh, you know, countries from other countries and how they work, their mindset. So this is absolutely amazing that, you know, we can we can keep these connections and work, you know, decentralized sort of. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And um, I'm really looking into uh, an international collaboration without borders, as I would say, because this pandemic had put a lot of breaks um, and I've seen that it made it much more easy to really communicate online. But what is happening is that, for example, during the international conferences, you would actually meet real people from different countries and you would sit down and talk with them problems that maybe you don't discover over an online call or even you don't discover at all in the first place. So it kind of like killed that personal international collaboration and interaction that I used to love a lot in the conferences. And I'm I'm hoping that maybe we will partially at least go back to some sort of a human <laughs> interaction and, and, and international collaboration that, uh, just like you said, will help exchange ideas and learn from each other. And that's the most important part. 
Yeah, I definitely, I can't agree more uh, with you. Actually, last week in Paris, it was the blockchain week and and I've started working in a project in blockchain on Web3. And that was my first real conference after two years. And I can't tell you how amazing it was. Like maybe it was by far the best conference. <laughs> you know, like when you, for example, diet and like fast for like two days and then suddenly you have this piece of chocolate. You're like, wow. But then you get sugar overdose. So I needed like a detox afterwards. <laughs> but like totally obviously understand. this connection, you you just connect with people on a different level when you see them, yes. when you shake their hands, when you look in their eyes, like for real, not through a camera, <laughs> that you don't look because they always look at you. <laughs> so it's not at all like the proper connection. <laughs> I want to ask yes. you the last question and it's about leadership. So mm. I've been watching you and I've been following you and mm. I consider you as a very successful leader who has gone a long way and you've been, you know, uh, managing different teams, going from different country to another country, like you're multicultural. I, I'm sure you have attained a lot of soft skills and cultural skills that you needed to have in order to succeed in your roles. So my question is that what leadership skills did you develop over years to perform in your various roles? Do you recall any concrete moment that was particularly challenging for you or a lesson? If you can share that little piece with us. <laughs> oh, I think I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, thank you so much. You're very kind to call me a leader. And this is overwhelming for me to hear that. But I don't see myself as that. I don't know. I'm, oh my goodness. I Sometimes I feel overwhelmed by the responsibilities that I have. <laughs> and that, that you're responsible for other people's and that your actions are actually affecting other people's lives. So from a leadership skill is really... And this is something that I'm continuously learning and I hope to even improve it is really to learn how to adapt to each person's need, uh, the persons that work with you or that come under your leadership, that you have to guide them, mentor them in the correct direction. It, it requires a lot of flexibility, first of all. Uh, it requires a lot of empathy because we are all different. We all have different needs. Uh, we all have different ways of working and different styles of working. So the styles of working can be indeed influenced by uh, the country that we live in, the culture, the working culture in that country. But it, it can also be, a, um, you know, a reflection of our own personality. So really uh, being a leader, uh, it's, it, it's around being capable of responding to the needs, the professional needs but also, you know, like in complementary with personal needs that the people working with you or for you are always, you know, uh, needing. So it, it, it's really finding that, that strategy to answer to their needs and help them, right? So I think that is probably one of the hardest things and it's it's an ongoing process everything is so stochastic everything is so dynamic that you always have to reinvent yourself with each person that you enter in contact with each team that you enter in contact you have to 
re-question yourself, re-question your decisions, re-question everything that you're doing, whether it's right or wrong, or whether this can actually help the group or not. And to be honest, actually, this question is something that I ask myself daily. Am I doing the correct thing? Am I helping the team? Am I really... Am I solving their issues? Am I helping them to get where they want in the long term? As And as I said, I'm, I still think that I'm just the beginning of my journey and that I'm trying to learn as much as I can from much more senior leaders out there that have successfully managed even, you know, hundreds or thousands of people and large teams. I think that is fantastic. I sometimes I look at some some of the senior leaders and I think to myself, how can they do it? And I'm <laughs> and I'm I'm just overwhelmed. So leadership is a human skill that needs daily improvement and reshaping. That's my current experience, <laughs> I would say. I don't know if if that's right though. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I just like some of your words are just touching my heart here <laughs> because that has been also my, I would say my challenge to be able to tailor my, my words, my asks or my requests or the things that I want to give somebody really tailor it for the same, for the person in front of me. So it is personalized. And when you mentioned that I ask myself every day, am I helping that person? And I'm giving that person what need, what he or she needs to become the better version of themselves. Really having embracing compassion and empathy. It is actually very hard because sometimes we are also humans and that we have also our down moments or we just go so much in our bubble. And that had been like, for me, the biggest challenge I can say, like to really come out and sit outside of me and watching the whole scene and see, okay, what is happening inside me? Let's just treat that. <laughs> let's like analyze that and meditate on it. And let's see what's happening in the other persons. The problem is sometimes we cannot come out of ourselves and our uh, state and put ourselves in the place of the person in front of us. And if we do that, we can be really a successful leader. <laughs> yes. And an important part of that is also communication. Um, so that's another important aspect that as you were talking, just came to my mind. And then as a leader, you need to be able to communicate very clearly what, <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts, but also you need somehow to convince the people that you work with to communicate clearly to you back. So this uh, whole pandemic situation, unfortunately, made everything online. So communication is still there. I mean, it's easy. Everybody connects online, not a, not a problem, not an issue. We just uh, talk about, you know, projects or the things that we have to do, etc. But what I often saw, and this is really uh, as an experience from the last two years, is that very often people feel like some sort of a barrier in talking about you know, their, their personal needs or their personal desires or like, you know, um, what they actually think about specific things. So it's kind of like put some sort of a barrier into this personal communication, right? So it became much harder from what I've 
actually seen to understand what people really want in reality and where they want to go. So this requires extra effort, whereas, I mean, prior to the pandemic and, you know, in a face-to-face, even uh, not necessarily every day, right, but even like periodical catch-up, Uh, in a face-to-face, I found that people open up more easily. So it's much easier to understand, you know, desires or thoughts or needs or um, future thoughts, future planning ideas. So it's kind of like I felt that the face-to-face kind of like eased the communication before. Whereas, yeah, this whole online kind of like environment, uh, yeah, helps people communicate better, but unfortunately not as efficient as before. So yes, how to actually go over this communication kind of hurdle from a personal and professional development point of view. Yeah, it's still something that I need to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say that honestly, with over the podcast, even when we don't have the video, I felt something very special about our communication. And I could like, I think the voice has a lot of power as well. (laughs) But of course, it's not the same way. I would definitely want to give you a big hug (laughs) after this episode. And thank Thank you you for all of that. (laughs) But yeah, honestly, I think that just when people open up, and I think we could also witness that over our episode that at the end of it, we were just laughing and like that connection is is made. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's difficult when you're so far from people and mm. you don't really get in the core of their essence of humanity, right? <laughs> and mm, absolutely. Yeah. So I just want to... Thank you. Thank you, Simona, for for your time today. I I learned so much from you over this episode. I learned a lot about transportation more than anything. (laughs) And yeah, I I never had like that that much of a depth into the (laughs) problematics and, and traffic jam and all of that. So thank you so much. Also, thank you so much for opening up your personal journey, your leadership journey. It just like means a lot to me. And of, of course, I'm sure for our audience. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for actually asking me all these questions, which really made me think, you know, uh, about all this um, aspect. So um, once again, it was lovely chatting to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This was Adriana Simona Mihaita from Australia. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Askari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.